Morning, John. Hi, how are you? Good morning, Derek. I'm well, thank you. And yourself? Um, I'm all right. Yeah, two Irishmen uh, on a pod, two episodes in a row. So this could be could be quite. Could happen. Hi. <laughs> um, I guess uh, let's start off by telling us who you are and give us a bit of a flavour of your background in, in sport and sport coaching, please, John, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. Um, thanks, Derek, for the invite on this morning. I'm looking forward to having a chat. So my name is John John Mackey. I am from Dublin in Ireland. Um, my background, sport, my passion, the sport I grew up in is combat sport, and particularly kickboxing. I started in the Korean martial art of Taekwondo in 1987, when I was nearly 10 years of age. And uh, I started coaching kind of semi-formally in around 2004, so nearly 20 years ago now, uh, coaching at a national level. Um, just coaching kids and bringing kids through the sport and, and coaching athletes into the intermediate sections of the sport. And then around 2013, actually, at the European Championships, I was approached by the uh, director of coaching for kickboxing Ireland to take a more formal role within the NGV. So that's nearly 10 years ago now that I'm working with the national team. Became national coach 2014 uh, for the Irish team. Been working closely with the Irish team ever since. Uh, became director of coaching for Kickboxing Ireland. So my role has kind of split between coaching athletes hands-on and kind of looking after the coach education aspects uh, for the NGV as well. But on top of that, and somewhat strangely, I have uh, a day job that involves working with uh, canoe sports or paddle sports. So I got involved with uh, paddling, canoeing and kayaking around 2011, just recreationally. But me being me, had to get involved in club politics and uh, get involved with all of that kind of thing, which kind of led to uh, me applying for a job with the national governing body in 2018. And I've been with Canoeing Ireland now for the last nearly five years, working uh, as their high performance director. So uh, an interesting blend of sports and an interesting blend of environments. Uh, one is very hands-on in terms of coaching. The other is very hands-on in terms of kind of management and leadership, administration, budgeting, etc. Um, so yeah, I've got, I'm kind of lucky in that I get to see uh, many aspects of, of sport uh, from two different lenses. Um, academically, I completed a master's degree in coaching science in the University College Dublin, UCD. Uh, finished in 2021, I think. Uh, COVID kind of put a jam the fork into it and kind of extended a little bit, but um, got a first class honours degree in 2021. Signed up for the DCU professional doctorate then uh, last year, so just just finished the first semester uh, of year one, starting the second semester now shortly. So, so looking forward to that. So that's that's me in a nutshell, Derek. Yep, me being me stood out for me in that uh, in that conversation. The right smile that went on your face. So I'd be keen to yeah. understand what me what me being me uh, uh, looks like and sounds like. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Feels like in a little bit a little bit of a while. Good spot. Good spot. I, I guess um, I guess we should start by saying that uh, you're in a car <laughs> while we're recording while, while recording this while you're between things. So um, yeah. I'll, I'll foreground this by saying uh, I recognise that time is pretty tight for you, but uh, um, but I do really appreciate um, do really appreciate you 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 giving me some of your time this morning. I, I guess the the first route in is coaching in in canoe sport and uh, coaching in uh, combat sports is completely different but in some cases it might be completely the same um mm. let's let's explore that a little bit where's the difference and where does where does coaching converge within those different roles oh that's an interesting question um i guess first of all i, I guess i need to say so my role is performance director in, in, in canoeing is not hands-on in terms of coaching the athletes but of a team of, of professional coaches so we've got four, six um, coaching staff uh, within the NGV. I liaise with them on a sometimes daily basis depending on where we are within the program but I get to spend a lot of time with them when I'm away and I, I travel a lot with the team um, because we've no facilities in Ireland in particular for canoe slalom our team need to spend a considerable amount of time uh, on the continent getting access to quality facilities where they can actually train in a in a in an environment that's conducive to performance, etc. So uh, I do get to see what the uh, I, how these guys coach, um, and I can compare it to um, my experiences within within kickboxing. And you know, coaching being coaching, Derek, there's a lot of similarities 
in particular when you're working with coaches who who get it, I suppose, who just understand that they're working with people. They've got a, um, you know, to use that that phrase, kind of a human-centered approach. So there's there's a lot of that within within our team. Um, I think that's a philosophy that we've managed to build, the culture that that we've managed to to build in relation to making sure that we we've got the athletes at the centre of everything that we do. Um, conversely, then with 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 kickboxing and I guess it, it depends. It's there's there's such a, a mishmash of different coaching views, or if you want to call it philosophies within within combat sport. There's it can be it can be very similar with what you would see in canoe sport, but very different at the same time. And I guess it really depends on the individual, and that might just boil back to the fact that there's probably a, a, a better understanding, or maybe the coach education. Um, within canoe sport, it's just maybe that's slightly more advanced. Uh, the fact that I'm working with high performance coaches in a high performance setting, high performance environment, um, and maybe working with club coaching within kickboxing, especially in the, around the coach education stuff. So you, you do get to see some disparity in, 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 in personal philosophies. Um, combat sport in particular is, uh, I've often said it's been plagued, but I've, I've, I've changed the word plagued to infested with just bad practice, um, myths, I guess all sport and across coaching science and sports science, myths, myths are prevalent, but even more so within, within combat sport, um, you, don't get, you don't get to see a whole pile of that where I guess there's professional coaches working, many of them with academic degrees and just maybe 10 or 15 years of, of, of working within, um, you know, in their environment and many of them former high performance athletes and not that that, that you know, always makes high performance athletes always make good coaches sometimes they don't but they've got they're, they're building on their own experiences too where in combat sport coaching the bar can be very very low so the entry point um, to start coaching within combat sport is really low i mean like you literally just have to have time to turn up and, and start coaching and that's great from you know from a volunteer's perspective getting involved at a club and that but it just leads to i think it leads to, to, to problems further down the road when coaches kind of um develop and you know they, they 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 progress along their own journey um and they collect all of these kind of bad habits and they identify with myths and a lot of the time within combat sport coaching i can talk from experience is that it's a very it can be a very coach-centered environment so it's as if the coach has all of the knowledge and the athletes are just passive receivers of this knowledge so they're like the coach treats them like they're empty vessels so you don't know what to do so i'm going to tell you what to do um, and you get a lot of that within within combat sport, kickboxing, boxing, MMA. I've seen it. Stupid, um, I've seen it so many times over the last 20 years. And, and maybe not so much within canoe sport. So there's a different kind of approach in relation to that. And I guess, again, just to repeat that, I'm, I'm, you know, within canoe sport, I'm working with professional coaches. And I mean that from a professional capacity perspective in terms that they're salaried. Um, you know, they would have to come through an interview process. Um, a recruitment process, etc. So we have the luxury of selecting the very best in terms of experience, academic qualifications, you know, chatting about their own coaching philosophies and their view of what coaching is and that as opposed to very different within kickboxing in Ireland because it's purely an amateur sport. We don't get any direct funding. Um, so, and I'm not trying to disparage or put down coaches who come in and come out sport and give their time. I think it's really, really important. Um, without them, clubs wouldn't exist. Um, but we have a job of work to do, and I think it's our responsibility as, a, as an NGB within combat sport to make sure that, that you know, volunteer coaches coming in, working with kids, working in clubs, progressing through to national and international level, are given opportunities to upskill and educate in relation to well, what's actually, you know, what's real and what isn't real within coaching, and what's a myth and what isn't a myth. How can we expand your philosophy or your ideology in terms of it's, it's not all about you? How can we make it more about the athlete? How can we empower coaches to think that way? So that was a bit of a, a bit of a long ramble in terms of some of the differences that I've seen across the two different sports. A lot of similarities, but at the same time, a lot of differences. And I think those differences are, are, are the gap between those differences are, are kind of big uh, in certain areas, if that makes sense, Terry. Well, I think to, to surmise, you, you might correct me if I'm wrong here, um, learning cultures particularly around how how coaches learn and, and then therefore how athletes learn are completely different uh, in in yeah, both sports but 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 i suspect some of the 
challenges uh, that you that you see around um, maybe in canoeing, particularly lower down in the pathway where you have contrasting um, philosophies of practice. Some of those mm. issue, issues may may still prevail to some extent. I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm keen to, to hold you in, in this idea of um, coaching myths and uh, I, I do have a particular interest in this and uh, my original uh, thoughts around <clears throat> um, my PhD was looking at how um, we can uh, develop uh, quite wordy epistemic vigilance within coaches. So um, essentially we can support them to develop a, a more finely tuned yeah. bullshit filter. Yeah, exactly. Um, because there there does seem to be um, a, a rising tide of, of parasitic ideas um, coaching memes, as it were, um, uh, that seem to be finding their way uh, into coach education, uh, coaching social media, coaching podcasts, um, and uh, self-ascribed um, coach developers, coach mentors who um, take it upon themselves to go out and, and spread um, the word, yeah. as it were, of, of, of the way to yeah. coach. Sure. So I'm keen to understand you know, have you got any strategies in place as to how you might tackle that within within uh, kickboxing and and combat sports, or do you think that yeah. the problem is 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 too difficult to deal with at at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a tidal wave of misinformation, unfortunately, with with social media. You don't have to travel too far in social media to find some sort of bullshit being being pushed from somebody who should know better or doesn't know better. Um, and of course, it's easy then to take all of that information that you get on social media and try and make it your own, so and incorporate it into your own into your own practice. Um, I think I think what's missing early on in in coach education is actually discussing and debating with coaches the need to develop that critical thinking aspect. So, which is your bullshit filter um, essentially, and, and that's missing from from my experience within coach education in Ireland. That's missing, and even you know, coach developer training in Ireland carries a, a lot of these myths. So if you go to coach developer training, which is which is run by the statutory authority here in Ireland, you will learn about learning styles. You will learn about leadership styles, personality styles. It's all still there. Um, it's it's very the training is very much based on um, instructional models, which are fine. They have a role. Um, you know, you, you, you talk about uh, learning outcomes and all of these things. They're all very much alive within coach developer training uh, here in Ireland. I'm not sure what it's like abroad. So right from the very start, when a trainee coach developer goes in to be, you know, to be trained, uh, this is what they're being told as, as, as a bit of a dogma. You know, it's like this is this is all kind of fact. And they, they come out of that training and they spread this stuff in their, their coach development classes. So... I took on the role of coach education for kickboxing two years ago and I just stripped it. I just pulled all of the modules right back and dumped a load of them in the bin. Um, and now we have a module actually, and it's probably the most fun module of all of them. Um, yeah, maybe that and the chat about coaching philosophies, which really digs into why and, and how they've come to coaching. But when we have a module in there now that deals with myths, so myths around... We, we, we try and talk about learning styles. We talk, try and talk about left-right brain learning, all the stuff that they would have come across uh, previously. There's a lot of stuff in relation to how agility is is developed, how athletes make decisions, uh, etc. And that's a really interesting module. And we get a lot of debate, a lot of heated debate, because obviously a lot of beliefs are being challenged in relation to that. Um, you hear about the 10,000-hour rule that's still flying around in terms of... Um, Know, mastering expertise and you've 10 years or 10,000 hours to get to a certain level of expertise and stuff. So Gladwell and uh, Syed still have a lot to answer for in relation to that. So that stuff is still flying around. Um, and it's really difficult. It's really, really difficult to combat because you're getting it at one, at one end from the statutory authority. You're getting it from a host of other peer coaches. You go on social media and you're also seeing it. And then there's this small cohort of what are seems to be kind of nerdy academics or pracademics or coaches with academic qualifications who are in the corner trying to combat this stuff. 
And we actually come across as being idiots. We're the idiots. And I said, what would they know, Sherlock? So many million people on social media are saying that the 10,000 rule um, exists, that there are learning styles, that we must coach in a certain way, that athletes make decisions in a certain way, that ladder drills are, you know, that develop agility, little things like this. Um, so we've had relative success in pairing all of the old um, syllabus back. I think the feedback that we get from the current um, modules is that they're much more enjoyable, much more challenging. Um, and we've changed, we've kind of changed a number of tasks as well around the, the, the process of them going through their training. So they've got a, a co coaching portfolio that has a lot of reflective tasks in it. We don't put too much, um, don't put too much emphasis on the assessment at the end. Not a big believer in assessment of coach training. I mean, how how do you how do you assess that? It's such a broad scope. It's such a it's such a you know a broad subject. It's very very difficult to take one hour and assess a coach in that. And there's a a very famous man here in coaching uh, in the coaching world, Liam Morgan, um, who is known as the coach's coach. He would have he would have been part of the original coaching Ireland setup when the statutory authority first uh, under Sport Ireland first started to develop actual coach training programs and he he, he spearheaded that for many many years um, up, up, only up to recently when he, he left over a, a I guess a clash of ideas and that but a lot of those ideas were around the, the inclusion of an assessment and he said in the podcast that in you know assessing a coach um, within one hour uh, sitting and watching their practice is just like assessing a chef on the ingredients that they're going to use before they've actually cooked the meal uh, and this resonated with me big time um, and I know it's still a requirement for Sport Ireland coaching to see an assessment has been carried out and we'll take that box but we don't you know we don't put too much emphasis on this being a pass fail kind of assessment it's just another it's, it's just another part of their journey um, in, in, in their learning so yeah we've reshaped a lot of what what we used to do within kickboxing's coach education but there's still a bit to do um, it's just me there at the moment looking at that. So we have to continue to upskill our coach developers and, and when they come through their coach developer training, undo some of the myths that they've come out of that with. So it's an ongoing battle, Derek, as you know. Yeah, for sure. And look, I've, I've got a background in in uh, writing uh, qualifications. Um, and I guess uh, here in, in, in Scotland, the my, my big role uh, within, the, within the day job over the course of, of four years was to step away from a, a UK-wide framework of coach education, which did um, privilege certain perspectives in the context of the syllabus um, and, you know, created a nation of coaches who um, could pass an assessment but didn't necessarily understand that coach education wasn't an endpoint. It was, it was merely a a collection of resources that your subsequent experience will give you the potential to unlock um, depending on the wants and needs of the athletes or the participants that you're working with or um, what the performance demands might look like over the next week, the next month, the next year. And, and I guess the short-sightedness of, of coach education sometimes to cast a judgment over somebody's performance in the course of 15 minutes to say that this this person um, can then use their badge uh, to attain uh, a certain level of status within within the coaching system uh, yes. by virtue of of what level of qualification they have, rather than um, truly understanding what their philosophy of practice is and exactly. uh, yeah. what what mechanisms. Problem solve, um, uh, make judgments on decisions about um, athletes' wants and needs over time. That that can't be done in the context of a course. It can only be done um, through uh, long-standing relationships between a coach and a coach developer or a coach mentor, um, where the motivation isn't to codify the practice, but but really to to develop their practice in situ. Um, exactly. and, and I think until uh, we get to a point where that becomes the norm, we're going to be consistently fighting um, this this battle around uh, 
trying to develop mental immunity within within coaches, um, mm-hmm. in particularly uh, developing some resilience to um, erroneous uh, ideas and erroneous practice. Um, the reason why uh, statutory bodies uh, like the one that I have worked for and do work for um, kind of lean into coach education is because there's a degree of certainty and control about it. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it, it strikes me that uh, you are more comfortable with the um, tentative nature of coaching knowledge, um, that we can't necessarily be truly certain of uh, what tool we're bringing to, to what problem um, because of the conditional nature of uh, what working with human beings is like yes. in, in context. So, so describe to me your, your, your personal relationship with with uncertainty as as a coach what does that look like as i said to you derek when we were chatting offline about um uncertainty it was certainly a topic i could speak on um for a long time uh, and I, I i you know i continue to try and expand my own my own knowledge base of of, of what i'm trying to do um as a coach uh, and and it's not easy because i, th- I think you know coaching because we're we're dealing with complex human organisms, um, uncertainty is always going to play um, a key role in, in all of that. And I think for cultures who are who are interested in expanding their knowledge base and who are keeping an open mind and maybe being you know have a pragmatic kind of philosophy to to their practice, I think embracing uncertainty uh, is quite is quite empowering because it pushes us to try and, and, and learn. It pushes me to try and, and learn more. Um, I, I, I love to learn about this, my practice, my, my you know my my approach to coaching. Uh, I love to reflect on it. Um, I like to try and identify gaps um, within it. And this is all stems from un- uncertainty. And interestingly, like when I came out of the masters, I. I thought I had everything sussed, you know, I thought, okay, you know, I've got the master's degree now in culture and science. I know how to navigate all the different academic databases of reasonably good skills and interpreting some, some papers and that. And I've, I, I came probably too quickly to some, you know, some points in relation to that's how we do this. And this is how we do that. And the answer to this is always that. And then the first year of the postdoc, uh, I was completely torn asunder in relation to that because we had a very intensive year in developing critical inquiry and critical thinking, experiential learning. Um, and the guys that, the lecturers that pulled that, that first semester together, and I said this to them, they did an absolutely amazing job in just turning us inside out. They turned me inside out. And I said at the end of the year, I feel like I don't know anything now, everything that I thought I knew coming out of the Masters was just pulled apart. And it it wasn't because the information, the knowledge that I, that I came um, in touch with through the Masters was wrong. It was just that there was always a conflicting theory. Somebody else had a different theory over here and someone else had a different theory over there. And they all made sense. So I remember looking at coming out of the Masters and thinking, wow, ecological dynamics is the answer, man. This is why I didn't like, I've been doing constraints-led coaching for years. I just didn't know what it was called, you know. I didn't know what theory it was kind of attached to, et cetera. And I went right down that rabbit hole um, until the prof doc. And I was pulled out of the rabbit hole and I was shown lots of other theories that all made sense. And in fact, kind of reflected my own coaching practice. So I wouldn't have purely used methods attached to an ecological dynamics theory. I would have provided instruction. You know, I would have had, I would have used drills. The, you know, the, represent, the representativeness of some of the practice would have been way down the scale in terms of, of its um, association with the sport, but all for particular reasons um, and reasons that I decided on as a coach in terms of the context of the person or people I was dealing with. So now I had all these different motor learning theories and skill acquisition theories, and I'm absolutely lost in the middle of it. And I purposely started to engage with people on Twitter who were having these debates purely just to help inform myself about what are people saying about these theories uh, because I'm completely lost in the middle here um, and I think maybe 18 months on to engaging with people all really good people on Twitter some of them really caught in their own kind of 
their own little bubble of, of certain theories and that, and that's fine. That's what they do. That's their thing. Uh, and I'm starting to come to re realization that all of these battles that you see within skill acquisition and motor learning are actually moot. People are fighting battles that don't actually exist. Um, and I think we need to kind of pull back a little bit in terms of just being adding, you know, just attaching labels to certain things just because it suits our own viewpoints, you know. So whether can, whether the use of instructions, for example, are, are are constraints or are they scaffolds, you know. So these are two different kind of concepts from two to two very different theories, but very, very relevant at the same time. So I was like, hang on a minute, there's too much, you know, the, the, there's, there's too much battling going on. And it, it actually... For me, it appears that we're probably all on the same page without a full understanding of, of, of what's actually happening from a theoretical perspective. And for me, that's been a real terms of uncertainty. Um, yeah, I mean, just, just trying to float and keep the head above water in terms of what's ha actually happening within the skill acquisition world. And that has really assisted me with my own understanding of how athletes learn to move, how they learn to make decisions, how how they develop skill, um, are they taught skill, does skill emerge, etc. Um, I'm still in the middle of it all, Derek. I'm only scratching the surface of it. Um, but every day is a is a learning day in relation to a lot of the topics within that 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 coaching sphere. And I'm I'm coaching 20 years now. And to be honest with you, I, I think I've just started to, to, as I said, scratch the surface. I don't think I was anywhere near the surface previously, even coming out of the Masters. Um, it's only within the last 18 months to two years, um, especially since I've got involved with the prof doc and just had some of those th uh, discussions with other coaches um, facilitated by really excellent experts that have really come to the conclusion that I don't know anything. And that's hard to take after 20 years of coaching at a high level too, Derek, I might add, you know, with, with, with some significant results. Which co goes to show you that results have nothing to do with, with how you coach, you know. It's interesting. Yeah. Well, it, well, coaching is one of those endeavours where everything works, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and look, conversations that I've had with, with um, Anna Stodder uh, over time, uh, you know, as she was, she's developing her academic career and her insights into in sport coaching, and she says, you know, there's very little evidence that sport coaching itself works. Um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Be because there's very little in the way of uh, of empirical study into the effectiveness of coaching intervention. Yes. So yeah, and and equally, look, I, I think I can empathise with where you're at. Um, I I had um, a degree of of certainty and some pretty well held beliefs, um, which I now would call well held misbeliefs, um, mm -hmm. around. Um, probably one, the level of knowledge I had around sport coaching and, and probably number two, how good I thought I was as a sport coach. Yeah. Um, and in, in, in reality, we're all, we're all. There of, of sport are really, really comfortable with the level of uncertainty that's needed to keep curiosity at the heart of everything that you do as a coach. Um, and what I find really difficult, um, and look, I think you and I are in the same space in terms of challenging um, individuals and uh, shall I call them tribes uh, on on social media around around their perspectives. And I've I've got those the nature of those criticisms wrong, and that's perhaps created a, a viewer or a perspective of me that I'm on one end of the spectrum when I'm when I'm not I'm, I, I like to feel I'm sat in the middle trying to make sense of how these different approaches to, to coaching um, it, it can interact and coalesce around around athletes wants and needs and it's interesting when I when I look through your Twitter feed um, recently I can see that you're still make, trying to make sense of affordances and what role they play around intentionality and it led me to mm -hmm. go back into a couple of papers in the past couple of weeks just to just mm -hmm. try and look at some of the classical thinking around uh, around ecological dynamics and e perceptual psychology in, in, in particular, really. Um, yeah. But but to do that at, at a meta theoretical level, and I know that sounds really really wanky and, and academic, but um, Julian North, who I've got tremendous respect for, would probably say that a lot of the arguments that are happening on on Twitter are happening at the level of general theory, which is why people end up talking past each other, and we need to. Yes. 
step back and try and look at where these theories converge and diverge on a meta theoretical level um, rather than continue continuing this almost bullshit um, shouting at each other from two ends or two opposite ends of a cavern um, and yeah. all that's happening is that coaches are falling down the middle because they're struggling to make sense of what it is that we're arguing about so exactly so, yeah 100% uh, I, I guess I'll, I'll privilege uh, a perspective on, um, on on knowledge here which is uh, have you read any of N. Twistle and Peterson's work? I don't think so yeah. Um, or even uh, some of the classical thinking by Simon or Schumer around um, conceptions of of knowledge, um, and they would talk about you know dualism on one end of a of a spectrum uh, as we develop uh, a more um, sophisticated uh, epistemological position or view of the world, where mm-hmm. we have um, you know black and white thinking, a degree of certainty around knowledge that um, can't be seen past. Um, and individuals such as coaches within a pathway might look at certain people as authorities and take their word as gospel. Yeah. Um, and as they start to develop um, more resources, uh, um, their relationship with knowledge might change to being something that, okay, well, there are different perspectives on something like coaching and each of those perspectives may have equal value but i need to um push push past uh, a threshold of uncertainty to try and understand where those perspectives are coming from so i may then arrive at a more reasoned perspective um a more personal perspective on on what's what's actually going on here um mm-hmm. and, I, and i think what's what's missing again to bring it back to the conversation around coach education is um, deliberately trying to create disjuncture deliberately trying to create what misero called disorientated dilemmas um, uh, pulling people apart as you called it mm-hmm. um, to, to show them not necessarily where they're going wrong um, but to show them how much uncertainty there actually is <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, and that's difficult to do, right? Um, I'm just going to say that really difficult, yeah. Uh, but it's also, on, in some cases, not very safe mm-hmm. for for some people who are so wedded to the idea of of right and wrong, uh, yes. or black and white, or true or false. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm and I'm keen to understand from from your perspective, in your experience, um, have you engaged in the type of work that needs to be done with coaches within within uh, kickboxing to generate that degree of of disjuncture and um, confusion disorientation within within coaches are you are you there yet i i don't think so i don't think so to be honest and like you said it's 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 difficult to do um it's really difficult to do in a formal setting um as well um it's challenging. I think the best that we can do, um, and we get to see, you know, coaches for two and a half days as they complete their their level two. If we can just plant one seed of uncertainty um, across that weekend, that encourages them to think more, to delve more, to you know, to to, to read more, to investigate uh, coaching a little bit more. And I think that. The current set of modules are designed in a way to be open-ended as opposed to delivering, just delivering knowledge and saying, look, this is what you need to know. Now off you go and coach. The modules are are intentionally designed to be open-ended and to, to leave a lot of questions at the end. So, um, but it's difficult and it's, it's, it's difficult because of the prevalence of, of misinformation and, and myths um, that are out there. It's difficult. It's probably even more difficult in combat sport coaching because of the archaic traditions that exist uh, that the sport itself has always been very much around the coach being the center of the universe and whatever the coach says goes and whatever information the coach has and the knowledge the coach has um, you know is not to be challenged um, and this is still very much alive and well unfortunately within the combat sport so when you get a group 
team of coaches in for two, two and a half days, you know, you've got really limited time. And I mean, the research is there. You'll know this, Derek, in terms of how impactful these formal coaching courses are. They're not really that impactful. In fact, they probably learn more when they sit with each other and have a coffee and a sandwich and have a chat. Um, so, you know, to answer your question, um, it is difficult. Um, and we're trying, um, we're trying to peel back the layers of coaching. The first module you'll do is about where your journey ends. And we've got a graph, a nice graph. And yeah, it's a PowerPoint presentation, unfortunately, that just shows that the journey is 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 unending in terms of, you know, coaches' ability to never stop learning, to to be open to new information, to challenge existing beliefs. Um, but then they go back to, to, to clubs where these traditions are held tightly, you know. So it's a, it's an ongoing it's an ongoing effort, I think. Um, maybe an ongoing battle in relation to kind of, you know, assisting coaches to think a bit deeper about what they're doing um, and to challenge some of the the norms that exist within coaching environments, especially within combat sport. That answers your question. No, no, for sure. And, and I guess herein probably probably lies the the benefit of taking a an in situ approach to doing coach development because the cultural level fi- f- uh, filter, uh, as Anna would call it, within within her model of uh, understanding how coaches learn, means that no matter what new knowledge you're uh, wrestling with or um, something that you want to experiment with or try out in context, mm-hmm. that, that that quite often that, that idea never um, never survives the interaction with, with um, personal, some, somebody's personal environment. Um, yes. You get this snigger sometimes from from your athletes to say, "Oh, look, the coach has been on a course this weekend," and you know the eyes begin to roll. But but sometimes yeah, it, yeah. it takes a degree of courage to get past that culture level filter. And I, and I wonder, yeah. is that is that the missing ingredient in in coach education? Is is the the cultural piece that needs to be done much broader than the the coach themselves? And actually, there's some systemic work that needs to that yes. needs to go on to fundamentally change people's perspective of what coaching is because you know we've got the hollywood idea ideation of what what coaching is which is tons of hustle and lots of shouting and uh, and the inspirational speeches uh, we have yeah. uh, this sort of very busy ideation of what coaching practice is and you see this a lot a lot within um what i would call uh, you know the babysitting sort of uh, uh, section of the industry where parents rock up to allow their kids to have a, a, a bit of um, a bit of activity for an hour or an hour and a half while they stand on the sidelines and catch up with their mates and they don't believe that uh, silence is a is an effective coaching behavior when actually it could be the most powerful one oh, um, yeah, I've been there, yeah. so they, they you know they don't perceive coaches who might coach through games or or through through a, a constraints that approach is actually being coaches or, or doing coaching because they're not yeah. you know taking people through drills and and uh, and, and yeah. heavy on direct instruction so I, I guess there's a there's a broader bit of work to do around supporting broader populations of people within sport and and dare I say out with sport around mm-hmm. around what coaching is and where coaching happens because it's not always on the field either that's very true yeah I agree I've been I've been that soldier. I've had parents come to me telling me I'm not very strict. I don't do discipline, etc. This is when I was coaching kids back at the club level. Traditionally, martial arts classes would start with kids in lines, so everyone would line up and bow in. I scrapped that. We don't do that. Yeah. Uh, obviously, parents would come with kind of a an old school uh, understanding of martial arts, where everyone's in lines, everyone's following the instructor's commands. You know, marching up and down the floor, everyone in unison, looking great. You come to my class and it's just it's it's chaos you know it's chaos because they're kids um and you just need to yeah you, 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 know, you just need to enjoy that you just need to get into the middle of it and obviously you're not standing back not doing anything you know you are providing instruction you're you know you're you're, you're scheduling your, your your practice sessions so they're involved in you know, developing their own levels of skill and agility etc but uh, you, you know i understand that i understand that completely it can, it can often look like at times that you don't care that you're just sitting back and just letting shit happen really which are kind of are sometimes well yeah because to a large extent you're herding cats so look uh yeah um I, my my background is rugby obviously and uh i spent yeah. uh, eight years of my 
early career uh, in sport as a development officer with a bag of balls over my shoulder and going into primary schools in in football rich uh, uh, communities within within Scotland and trying to get them to understand how to play a game of rugby and the only way that you could do that is develop games um, from and through chaos yeah. um, which is which is perfectly fine because at, at, at some point you'll end up with a with a degree of, of structure or certain conditions that that players can play with which is which is perfectly fine in a game that looks like rugby but isn't quite rugby and, and you're yes. perfectly fine with that I, I'm keen to understand um, uh, I don't know whether or not you're au fait with some of the um, narrative around coaching in youth sports uh, within the UK now and um, uh, there's a there's some language also being used on social media around cruelty that mm-hmm. that, co- that coaching through drills is cruel mm-hmm. um, that uh, children standing in lines is cruelty um, and we're suddenly getting uh, this this narrative through policy that it's the rights of the child to choose. Um, what 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 what's your thoughts on that? Have you given that much much thought, or do you think that we're we're conflating two issues that don't need to be conflated? Yeah, probably. Yeah, that would be my first instinct, Eric. Um, I've picked up on some of those discussions online. All right, I haven't I haven't uh, investigated it too much. Um, I mean, putting kids in lines is a is a cruel. I look a lot of it is con, is context dependent, isn't it? Um, I've used lines in kickboxing classes um, because I was just under resourced in terms of having a, you know assistance. So you have to put kids in lines because it's it's just a method of keeping everything somewhat structured. Um, especially if you're doing the likes of pad work and, and you know, and drilling, I guess, in, in, in combat sport has it seems there seems to be a different understanding in relation to drilling in combat sport and what you might see in field sports, which is soccer, et cetera. And there seems to be online anyway, a massive pushback against drilling in, in, uh, within soccer and, and other field sports. You, know, you pick up on this in certain discussions and that uh, it's something I've, I've tried to engage with. With people in terms of are we you know are we actually discussing different things here so within combat sport drilling is, is is very much part of the culture of combat sport training and there's a reason for that because you know we punch and kick each other in the face and that's not always um you know that's not always a good thing to do in terms of uh, practice so we have to kind of scale things back from a safety perspective and there's also you know just learning how to deliver you know particular technique onto pads and, and, and stuff like that and in some cases in order to do that, you know, we have to put people into lines. Um, is it cruel? I've rarely seen kids standing in lines where, depending on the length of the line, right, and what they're trying to do, obviously you don't want them hanging around for too long. You want to keep people busy, keep the kids engaged and active. But they have great cracks standing in the lines because they're standing beside their mate. You know, they're standing beside the girl or boy, whoever that they might have a little crush on, or they're developing a friendship with, and they get to have a chat, and then they come up. In fact, standing in the line and having the crack with their mate is probably a little bit more important to what actually happens when they get to the pad, and they go jab, cross, kick. That's just box kick back into the line. Let's have the crack, you know. So, yeah, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't witnessed some of the practices that go on where people are saying, well, this might be cruel and, and you know, I'm, I'm, and I'm all for including kids. If I'm coaching kids, I'm all for including them in what should we do? What would you like to do? But you have to have some sort of structure on that because they'd love to swing out of the chandeliers, you know, they'd love to paint the walls, they'd love to, you know, pull up the carpet. So there has to, you have to approach these sessions and these practices with a little bit of structure yourself otherwise you, you know you're gonna you're gonna lose and you're gonna lose it and you are gonna look like you're having a clue what you're doing so um yeah engage with them ask them what they'd like to do for sure get their opinion um you know maybe give them some ideas to work off i'm not sure around the whole cruelty um and and, and, and stuff like that yeah. but i can't comment because I, I haven't seen um maybe some of these practices that i would draw on such criticisms so no for sure and look i guess where that's coming from is um there was a period where uh, people were retweeting somebody's practice, which they're sharing on Twitter, and it's maybe like oh, a, really, a really closed yeah. drill. Um, yeah, I saw that. Yeah. And and people with significant following uh, are retweeting it, saying this is cruelty to children, and you're just thinking, yes, have a day yes. off. Um, absolutely, 
that's bizarre. That's absolutely bizarre. Yeah, I did pick up on that. All right, that was the wall. The wall. The famous or infamous wall ball video. Yeah. Wallgate. Wallgate. Yeah, but yeah. but there was a, there was another one where it was like four kids interacting okay. in a passing drill, which which yes. might have been just you know developing a little bit of confidence. But I I, I really struggle with these like ten second clips that people make broad assumptions around the totality of someone's practice. 100%. Without even talking to the coach, like and asking the coach, well, what you know, what was the reason for this? Because I'm sure the coach probably had a good reason for it. Yeah, yeah, we could get into a chat about ditching drills all day long, but I think uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. I'll save myself from from uh, um, getting into trouble in that one. I mean, where where does the scale of representatives end? You know, um, you know, for me, and I'm not a football coach, but if you've got a football at the end of your feet. It may not have all of the information around you that you would have in a, in a performance, but you've got a ball at your feet and you're making decisions around what you're going to do with your feet. So there's levels of representatives there. Representatives. 100%. And look, you can't have fidelity all the time. No, you it, can't. Um, and equally, um, what is task simplification in the context of ecological dynamics if it's not a drill? Yeah, 100%. 100%. We did a little bit of work there as part of the prof talk. It was only an assignment working with Dave Collins on representative design, you know, and a suggestion that it's all in the mind, you know, that you can actually, uh, it, it boils back to kind of the use of imagery and visualization where you can actually, you know, bring all of that information into your own personal training. And you see that a lot, a lot in combat sports, you know, and one of the great examples, and I don't need to give him too much credit anymore, but when he was coming through, Conor McGregor beat, um, Jose Aldo with that 13 second left hook which you can see him practicing in isolation on his own and in interviews afterwards you know it was all about the mental imagery he had himself there practicing this uh, in a confined environment in a small room just him practicing that left hook on its own over and over in the build up to the fight um, and he delivered it within 13 seconds and won against a formidable opponent um, and we spoke, myself and Dave met in Limerick, we spoke about this, you know, and, and, and that, you know, this kind of cognitive priming um, was the term given to it, that it can be representative and that you don't always have to, you know, have, to have um, you know, corporeal form in relation to, to representative training, but there's other aspects to it. And again, that's another example of how you can get caught into one one theory and just close yourself off in relation to, to one theory when there's lots of other ideas floating around you know yeah and look i guess we're talking about affordances here and intentionality and um i i think the space exists within that theoretical perspective or that theory for um the mind to bring affordances into existence absolutely um, because i think some of the short-sightedness I, I think uh, there's a difference between misinformation and misbeliefs mm -hmm. um and, and i think uh, the narrative that's spun around affordances um is short-sighted in the sense that yeah it, it's it's uh professed as being merely opportunities for action but some of the classical yeah. thinking is that it's opportunities dangers and possibilities um to understand something as a danger requires experience and yes. uh, knowledge of knowledge about a uh, model of or representation of the world to understand that that is dangerous but but equally possibilities for action requires some degree of significance mm -hmm. and what significance is that affordance in terms of what i could possibly do with it to it around it yes um, and then you think about intentionality um, and bringing affordances into existence by planning for accounting for what affordance you want to exist exactly. at a moment at a mom particular moment in time and that that's where i think um having a very sort of interactionist view of how um psychologized views of of uh of skill acquisition and more ecological views of, of skill acquisition could could come together and complement each other really well. So. Yeah, um, that's a great point. But but uh, but you become alienated by speaking like that because you're you're deemed to be in in some tribe yeah. somewhere. When in reality, 100%. I'm not. I'm just trying. I'm just trying to make sense of it. 
Um, exactly. Exactly. It, it, I, I got I got scoffed at there about two weeks ago because I suggested that there might be you know a chance of integration of of information processing theory and equal D based on a clip that I posted again of a combat sport athlete um, who was intentionally setting up a particular technique, so had some form of internal representation of what they wanted to do. Uh, and posted that up, hopefully hoping to get some discussion. But it was scoffed at in terms of integration of both techniques, of, of both theories. I mean, crazy direct messages coming in telling me I don't know what I'm talking about, etc. That's all fine. I mean, but again, if you're going to pull the shutters down on, on discussing these things, uh, well, then yeah. I think you're just wasting your time. You know? Heaven forbid an athlete might have a game plan. Imagine, imagine a thought out, pre-rehearsed game plan. Wow. Genie. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And look, look um, it, it is interesting that uh, I, I feel in some cases the world is closing in around us with um, the increased prevalence of uh, ecological dynamics. Again, not against it, not against it at all. Um, not at all, it's very valid. It's a completely valid theory, yeah. Um, there's more to it. But there's more to it. Um, and uh, yeah, I think if we take a step back and understand the true implications of some of the classical thinking around perceptual psychology, uh, it would it would mean that we have a more nuanced understanding of of the perspective and um, create space for us to look at how different perspectives might interact. While without, as you say, just pulling the shutters down because uh, personally you struggle to see eye to eye with some of the people. On, on the different sides of the divide and and I think yes. it's, it's becoming um, more personal and less philosophical uh, this divide. it certainly seems to be yes it certainly seems to be um, and I don't know if if that's just a new trend or whether that's been there for a while but my observations is that it's becoming ridiculously personal yeah. uh, to a point where people are calling each other out really physically you know uh, which is yeah, yeah it's bizarre it's problematic and it's 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 it unhelpful yeah. Uh, might be a good place to call this to an end eh? <laughs> before we get before we get even even too yeah too negative. The rabbit hole, the rabbit hole is beckoning for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure I want um, to pull myself into that rabbit hole today. No, I've just pulled myself out of it, so I'm, I'm happy where I am, getting a breath of fresh air and seeing other perspectives. No, for sure. Um, yeah, it doesn't help my uncertainty. It's probably safer and feels maybe better to fall into a rabbit hole and the doors behind you in terms of certain theories and pretend you know it all it's probably safer to do that but um yeah it's certainly not the best place to be